Hey guys, I'm here today with Jane Anderson. She is a female leader who teaches females in both corporate and entrepreneurial spaces how to really leverage their personal brands and turn that into more influence, more authority, and just grow either within the corporate space, increasing your career and advancing, or using it within your own business to with your own marketing and ability to expand the business. So super excited to have her on and learn more about her journey because she has had a very powerful, impactful journey throughout her own life and how she's discovered these methods that have allowed her to be who she is today. So super excited to have you here today, Jane. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm super, super wrapped to be able to come on and, and hang out with you and your audience and see what I can do to help. Excited. So I always like to start by going back. So how did you get into this whole space? How did it all <laughs> begin? Yeah, isn't it? It's a great question because, you know, I don't know if you found this, Joss, you know, and I love chatting to fellow marketers because they really get it. You know, in 1997, I was in my second year at uni and I remember this concept of personal branding came out with Tom Peters. I remember the article came out in Fast Company. I remember thinking, who on earth needs a personal brand? Like there was no social media back then and I, I was like, that sounds so awesome. I so want to do that, but I have no idea how that... Like, how, when would someone say, I need a personal brand and here's my credit card, please? Like, I could not get my head around it. But what occurred to me was what I was actually doing. I worked with the Mathers family. So I don't know if you know Mathers shoes. So Mathers. if you had Clark school shoes growing up. So, uh, so I worked with the Mathers family for 12 years. And Sir Robert Mathers was my very first mentor and his daughter, Tracy. So... So I worked with them since I was 14 years old, right through to the time that I was, uh, what was it, 28? So, wow. and uh, so I, while I was at uni, I was working for them and I was like, hold on, I'm actually working for a personal brand here. And what I learned from them over time was that even before social media existed, was that uh, people buy from people. They buy from people who they know, like and trust. And so uh, what I realised was that actually it's actually about your reputation, your commitment to building community. And, you know, Sir Robert was knighted because of his ability to and his commitment to the community. And so I say to ladies, I go, yes, you can get knighted for growing for selling shoes. <laughs> uh, but they were an extraordinary influence on me, on helping me to carry their values in, in their stores. And, uh, and then I went on to work for Super Retail Group, so Super Chief Auto, BCF, across cycles. And my job was to retain the leaders within the organisation because we had 75% of the workforce was millennials. And uh, so really, that's quite high. Which historically speaking has high turnover. How do you keep the high skilled staff and or promote them or whatever? Yeah, absolutely. And then in government, so I worked for Queensland Transport. I was there. I was a HR senior HR advisor there and trainer, and did a lot of work in helping people to get jobs. At the time, we built a lot of capability frameworks and just starting to teach people how to sell themselves. Um, and then there were things that, it, it, like, I was always I thought because I learned fairly young how to make sure that a brand is positioned right and people and those values and and that connection with community worked. But it wasn't until I had my own challenge of selling myself that I really realized how hard it was. <laughs> I was just about to get into that because you've really built corporate brands there and maybe helping within companies to do what they need to do. But 
I'll let you tell the story. It sings much better if you do it. Oh, what happened? Oh, what was this pivotal <laughs> moment that happened in your life? Yeah, the pivotal moment was definitely my divorce. You know, I was I was in a country town. I was in Toowoomba at the time. So this is where I was working with Queensland Transport. And it, was a, it was a great job and I really enjoyed working there. And my challenge uh, was, was that, you know, I had to leave town. I had to move back to Brisbane and move back with my parents. And, you know, there's nothing more character building than moving back in with your parents is there like and i but it was right in the middle of gfc and i remember i, I was at my I would, i'd been applying for jobs and i got to the three month mark of applying for jobs and i remember my mother you know she just i don't know if you're what you're what any of the listeners parents are like but my mum's really good at dishing out tough love and she said i don't know what you're doing but it's not working. <laughs> and uh, and she said, look, I think it's time for you to have a chat to Centrelink because you're, mar- you're trying to apply for all these jobs and, you know, frankly, this is what you do for your clients and now you can't do it for yourself. So what's going on? And, like, that was, that was pretty brutal um, commentary, but at the same time I thought, you know what, she's so right. And I thought, you know, I'm not too proud. I was quite happy. I said, right, I'll go to Centrelink. I don't care what I do. I don't care if I clean toilets. I really don't even care. Um, I'm not afraid of our work. I grew up in the country. And I thought, well, you know what? The market has changed. Things are different. So what I've got to do is really think, really, very, like I had to think about really what is it that I really want to do because whatever I'm applying for is not working anyway, so I might as well get really clear about what I want. And then work out who needs my help. I thought, this is crazy. I've got, I've got good skills. I've got great referees. I work hard. There must be someone who needs my help. So I started to work out what that dream job would be. And I, uh, what I worked out was the dream job. I asked around and everybody in town said, you've got to work for Peter Bertels. He's the CEO of Super Retail Group. You know, he's, uh, he just had this amazing reputation because I said, you know, I want to work in retail. I want to, it has to be a large organisation. They have to be committed to building capability of people using innovation and technology to do that. And they have to be in Brisbane. <laughs> and everyone said, you've got to talk to Peter B. So I reached out and uh, I managed to get an interview because I said to the recruiter, look, just give me 10 minutes. I, I know I'm a great fit for you. I, I know what you're trying to do. I did heaps of it's research. It's amazing how small that circle comes when you start to do you really refine it? Like I can you say that I've got like maybe three, three or four people in mind that would actually fit that. That's a that's it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's when I realised, okay, well, I don't want to move to Sydney or Melbourne, and there's really only one or two people in here in Brisbane that fit that criteria. So what I've got to do is stop trying to spread myself thin. I've really got to narrow down and show these people why I can help them. So I said, look, can you just give me ten minutes of your time? I can show you what I can do for you. I know you haven't advertised at the moment. So they took my meeting and I pitched and they said, look, thanks for coming to see us. We we can see you're a good fit for us, but we just don't have anything at the moment. And I said, okay, that's fine. And two weeks later they called and said, the person whose job that you want has just resigned. Uh, is there any chance you're still available? <laughs> I said, yes. And uh, they said, when can you start? I said, I'll be there tomorrow. So it was. It really was my dream job. That was. I knew that I would eventually go out on my own, like I am now. But that I knew that I wanted to finish my corporate career 
in a role where I could really have a really good uh, and really substantial impact, implement some great stuff, work with great people, and, and that was, was what I got, and I'm so grateful for it. Point here, yes. So what was your legacy when you left um, Super Retail Group? What kind of stuff did yeah. you bring in? Great question. Legacy is always an interesting one. So at the time, uh, there were a few problems that were happening and there were a few opportunities as well. So at the time, they were going through a, a massive acquisitions phase. So at the time, they just had super retail, super cheap auto and BCF. Um, then we were, uh, we had to double the size of the organisation within about uh, two years. And the goal was to become in the, to move into the top 10 retailers in the country. At the time, it was in the top 20. Massive, massive uh, goal for 18 months. <laughs> so it was uh, so the impact. So the legacy was is that instead of it just being purely focused on automotive, was that how do we broaden out and service the capability to bring in people who are both like passionate about cycling and then passionate about outdoors and camping and passionate about cars and passionate about boating. Um, so to streamline all that capability building. And the big thing though was the technology. So the organisation had a, a large number of stores and so 10,000 staff across all those stores and the different systems were working and what I had to do is my job was twofold. One was to uh, increase increase the capability of individuals within those stores. Like you've got Townsville BCF that had 40 staff and other like uh, super cheap at um, Maruga had like 10. So um, being able to deliver training programs at scale and being able to deliver it around the work, uh, the business commitments in a way that was really economical. And so, you know, everybody got through those training programs. And the other one was that it was 75% uh, of the workforce were millennials. So we had a real challenge around uh, retention at the time. And so it was the job, so uh, my role was to increase the retention of the leaders within, of, of particularly the highest store performance, because you've got 19 year olds running million dollar stores. Like, um, so being able to uh, retain those, so we doubled the retention in uh, within six months was really the focus. What I had to do, so, so that's and really it wasn't just me. I had a great team. They did all yeah. a, a huge amount of work. That's a really good thing you talked about just there. What is it that allowed? What kind of things do you implement that helps you with that retention? Yeah, so a few things. One is um, being it's particularly on the onboarding phase. So if they're being onboarded, is how quickly that training is delivered. Is at, like is it so when I came in it was kind of delivered annually and um, so it, it needed to move to sort of more quarterly so we needed to get there yep. quicker and the other thing was was um, being able to do as much of the training in their stores as opposed to doing so much in uh, face to face and in a classroom situation so uh, so built the capability of uh, created this role that was called area training managers and so they weren't area managers of the stores. But these were people who had really high performing stores, they were ready for a stretch, and we trained them in how to train people. And so we pulled out all the competencies that could be done in store and got them to do those. And then, so that meant, because a lot of them, you know, they were working parents, they had kids, they had, you know, either elderly parents, they had animals, you know, trying to get people away from home for significant periods of time that weren't used to that. 
um, was, you know, a big challenge. So we reduced the amount of time that they were away and got much more done in store. So it was so much more efficient um, and built the capability, you know, in the long term of, of, cap- of people who can teach. I would say the, AT, the area training managers, that would be a huge just for retention that they get their extra responsibilities and just feel good about themselves as well. Yeah, millennials want to grow. They want to learn. They want to, you know, they want things to move fast. And but you know, they there are those who are aware that they do have some really good skills, and then there's those that want to move fast but don't have those skills. So for those who have got the skills and have got, got the commitment and the and the ability to do that, it was a perfect opportunity to tap into that and reduce the uh, the uh, resource the impact on the resources that head office. It was great. When did you make the decision it was time to move out and do this new thing, do the Jane Anderson brand? Yeah. But was yeah. it this thing or was there some in between? Uh, there was in between. So while I was there, I always knew that I would do, do this. And uh, so in that role, while I was there, I'd always been a coach internally. You know, I, I, I was a big part of the team that built a coaching culture within, um, it was part of the strategic plan. and. One of the things that I did was uh, I knew I wanted to make the transition and it wasn't that I didn't like my job or anything, I loved it, but it was that I knew I had a bigger game that, to play. So I started coaching, I, I did career counselling and career coaching. So I, I was accredited as, as a career counsellor, I was fully accredited. And uh, so I started to make the transition. I coached clients on Monday nights, Thursday nights and Saturday mornings. <laughs> And I was able to take three clients a week and then suddenly the Saturdays started to build up and next thing I'm doing Sundays. So I just got to a point where I was like, okay, I can see the consistency of the clients starting to come through. So now I think I'm ready to, to make that move. So I took it very gradually. It was a lot of, a lot of hours <laughs> work, but it took about a year. Can I ask, what was going on in your life personally? So you got the work site that's going, you're starting to get some bit of performance there and starting to rebuild your life after the post-divorce. Yes. What was happening on your personal side? Were you, do you have kids or? No, so I don't have kids or, or anything like that. So I was kind of, I guess I had a little bit more uh, flexibility than most people. And so I knew that, uh, I didn't know what the future would hold for me, whether it would mean having kids or not. And I thought, well, you know what? If I'm going to do it, I've got to do it now. And I can't wait. You know, I spent my entire marriage not being allowed to do what I wanted to do. I wasn't allowed to be a coach. I wasn't allowed to do all these things. So I thought, you know, and uh, actually while I was growing it, and even to a certain extent over sort of the years coming out of there, I said, you know what, this is my turn. So I decided... I actually decided not to date anybody until I hit a certain revenue point. (laughs) And, you know, it sounds funny, but it was more about I needed to know that I was going to be okay. I needed to have Mm. my independence and I needed to know that I wasn't a burden to somebody else or anything like that. I just wanted to know I could stand on my own two feet and I'd be okay. And uh, once I I got that, it was... You know, like you've got friends who are wanting to introduce you. They go, oh, you need you need to have a break. You need to go and come on this date or meet what this guy. Is, it's so counterintuitive <laughs> to what most people choose to do. It's it's you really set your own path. And a lot of women listening to this who are trailblazing, they're probably out there under similar circumstances where the friends are pushing them down a certain path as well. So I think it's. 
great to have an influence like you that's done it. You know, I think, you know, for women it's hard. You know, I didn't have kids, admittedly, but for those, you know, I'm in awe of women who can do it all. Um, and there's, there is a fear of that you're going to be by, maybe one day be on your own and how are you going to do this by yourself? And so to really, you know, what I found was that it, we're not trained to be selfish or, or we think it's selfish by having to put yourself first. And, you know, if you've come out of a situation where you're always having to look after other people and make sure everybody's okay and having been in HR for some time, that was always my focus. Um, but I did a marketing degree, so I always sort of worked between those two. But it was being okay with it's okay to take time and be focused on what you need to do to build your future. And all those things will come later. It'll be okay. So, but uh, it was really quite transformational, those three years it took. From my perspective, it seems a lot of what you do and even with all of other entrepreneurs and amazing people I talk to, it's always the soft skills and that internal resilience that really makes the biggest difference. Like the hard, the hard skills you can learn. It's not difficult, but it is right. And you've had your business for so long, so you know we were talking about this a bit earlier. You know, those skills, the resilient skills. You know, they're the things that are going to you know get you through ups and downs. Like Queensland, we've got a volatile government. You know, I lost about eighty percent of my contracts in the first few years in my my business because of they were government contracts. Um, and we've got floods. <laughs> we've got all these things that we deal with. Uh, so if it, by sort of being able to, I guess, identify how you get through personal challenges is being able to apply those to your business challenges, isn't it? I think so. Just the mental kind of space. I think. I think what I've experienced with a lot of females who are incredible what they do, they do have that self-confidence issues or the external stuff that you've mentioned. I think as men, we don't experience it as much or we don't have the same stigmas attached to the way we're able to be bold in our businesses. So can you, I guess, elaborate yeah. more on the kind of issues that females have and how you've helped them turn that around? Yeah, it's funny. I actually wrote a blog about this last week about um, how confidence or that imposter syndrome and inner confidence compares between men and women over time. And so what happens is early in careers, so for women particularly, particularly through the 20s, 20s and 30s and 40s is when women struggle with it the most and men have, a, have higher levels of self-confidence then. It actually evens out when they're in their 50s and then when you get to your 60s, women's confidence is actually higher than men. And so you're seeing, I don't know if you've noticed, but I follow all these amazing 60-year-old women on Instagram who are so totally stepping into their power at the moment. Like they just like, you know, their levels of self-confidence are so high. And I always wonder early in the careers, like around those 20s, 30s, 40s, um, I wonder what we could have done, you know, to be able to you know, yeah. tap into that earlier. But um, what it is, is that, uh, so who was it? It was, um, uh, was Hewlett-Packard that did a survey a few years ago and they identified that if they put a job ad out, 60%, uh, uh, sorry, women will apply if they can do about, uh, if they can do 100% of the job, like if it says, you know, these yeah. are the criteria we're looking for. Men will apply if they can do about 60% of it. And... They said the key difference was not that men struggled with self-confidence, it was that they still take action despite 
being perhaps still feeling a bit unsure, but women won't take the action. So they won't have a go. So, and I always, you know, my, I grew up with my, my dad's such a have a go kind of person. If he doesn't know how to do something, he goes, I don't know, let's try this and see if it works. And, um, and I think if, if, I think for more women is, I think that's something we can really learn from men is that they think, oh, you're confident, you know, that's, I go, no, I've worked with a lot of men as clients and there's times where they struggle with their confidence. It's actually the difference is they just have a go. I think personally, when I'm terrified of something, it's where I know I need to push into it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Because you'll learn, right? Well, I think yesterday, I haven't been <laughs> running in ages, so... I like went out, got the shoes on. I'm like, okay, I'll I'll go back. I might actually ride the bike instead. Like, you know what? I'm hesitating here. There's a reason why I'm hesitating. I should go and do the run. Right. It's simple, like, simple things like that that we just yeah. When you go into your uncomfortable, it's retraining the fear, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, re- rewiring the brain, yeah. working out why you're not doing something. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for business owners, I think we're forced with things like that almost every day. So you learn to build up that um, uh, ability. The self-talk is a big thing, isn't it? Just to go, what are you What are you talking about? Why are you complaining about this? You should be doing that. Let's just have a go. Come on. Like you kind of got to be your best friend, don't you? You got to just really, the self-talk, you can either talk yourself out of it or you can go come on, let's just have a go. You'll feel heaps better by the time you get back, isn't it? I guess my assumption when talking to you, that a lot of the women you work with have progressed to a certain stage in their career, but they're just stuck there for the last have a little bit when they start to speak to you. Yeah. And they've got years of programming that I'm assuming you need to help them rewire. What kind of, what are your techniques and how do you do that? Yeah, so it's a big difference whether they've got their own business or whether they're within an organisation because if they're within an organisation, it's often the message or the culture or the environment that they're in that's having that impact. And then if you're in your own business is, yes, I've hit a, a stall point, like I don't know how to break through to the next level. And there's one thing, if I, if you had to say, look, there's, heat, there's so many things that make a difference, but if I had to say there's one thing that both have in common and make the biggest difference is building their tribe around them. So, and um, I don't know if you, you're a marketer, so you would come across Dunbar's metrics and building tribes. And, and uh, I tell them that I share with them, you've got to find your 15. So Dunbar, so for those who are listening going, what's she talking about, Dunbar? Um, So Robin Dunbar is a social anthropologist who identified the tribes globally, so indigenous tribes here in Australia, tribes in the Amazon, and looked at, well, these tribes that have survived through centuries, why have they survived versus those that died out? And he identified the metrics. And so he said, what are the numbers that make that work? And the thing that I find for most women is is that whilst they're really good at connecting and, and they're, they're quite reasonably good networkers, is they actually don't have a board of directors around them who can help them to make really good decisions. They're often on their own, they're so busy looking after everybody else that they don't have a group around them. So whether they're in their own business or in an organisation, is like, what I do is I come in and set those tribes up and to create the boards of directors around them. Okay. Is there a difference? Because I find men tend to do the same as well. Or was it just that men have unofficially cultivated stronger... Let me rephrase it. 
men who tend to be a uh, alpha alpha top, uh, A-type personalities tend to create their own circles. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Yeah, I agree because because men, particularly if they're A-type personalities, they know that they can't get through everything themselves, so they have to tap into, you know, people who have got, you know, areas of expertise or knowledge that they don't, whereas, and they'll ask for help. And whereas women will not ask for help. So, so they're so busy being the helper. Females who are A-types tend to take it all on themselves and self-directed learning rather than asking, seeking out those mentors. Is that the difference? Yeah. Yeah, and they won't sort of necessarily even research things. Like they, they won't necessarily say, oh, so, you know, I need this. How would I go about that? Like the first thing I'll often say, have you Googled it? And they'll go, Oh, no, I didn't even think of that. Like, they think they have to come up with everything themselves. They're so used to trying to be resourceful for everybody that when they come to a resource for themselves, it's sometimes hard to think outside of themselves. So I'll, I'll say, okay, well, let's do a little bit of research first. Is this, can you actually get some information on this? Or then we'd say, well, who do you know who might know the answer? Like, can we contact them? If not, can we ask around? Let's ask around our networks. So, yeah, I find men are far quicker at, at getting on the phone and um, and calling someone, whereas women feel like, oh, but I haven't spoken to that person for a year or I haven't spoken to them, whereas men go, oh, I went to school with them 40 years ago. I'll just ring them. We've all done that at some point. <laughs> women are far more mindful. I did read some research on this the other day. I can't remember who said it, but um, women are far more mindful of the recency of the communication before they'll communicate. Whereas whereas men will go, oh, we went to school together. That was like years ago. Oh, I'll just ring them. They'll be fine. So it's it, that I thought that was I thought that's actually very true. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that's true. That's, where is do you know what it's based on, or why that's important? Uh, you know, I I think women are mindful. You know, of, of the Cialdini's you know law of reciprocity yes, of. When was the last time I, you know, contributed or gave? I think women are very, they're very giving all the time, always helping and giving someone something before I can ask for something in return. Where and or they feel like I, the, you know, it's uh, it's kind of like Covey's work around the the trust bank account. Yeah. You know, how many deposit, how much, and they have got that kind of in their mind. How many deposits have I made before I can ask for something? Or I, you know, I don't know if I can ask for anything. Whereas men will ask and. They, they don't hesitate like women do. Women worry, that we worry about what people think of us. We'll worry if, um, uh, you know, what might be said or with our, whether I'll be judged. And whereas um, I think for men, they just go, I don't know, just, just ask. They don't hesitate. They just kind of go for it. And um, they kind of, I, what I really like, and I've had amazing male mentors still do and male clients is learn so much about, just you're kind of in your own way, like just <laughs> just get on with it. And I think for women, I, I find with the, the clients I work with or the women in the programs I'm working with at the moment that I'd say I'm a compassionate butt kicker. So I just say I, I, I'm kind, I'm understanding, but I will kick your butt if you don't. Know, you know, you know, you, I've got an incredible female friend who does amazing stuff, the work she does for clients, but she doesn't realise it as much. Right. But I see, I ask her, like, who's your, 
it's great that we're friends and we have great conversations, but I don't think you're going to be able to relate to me the same way that you're able to relate to another female. Who are your female yeah. friends? It's like, well, most yes. of them are mums or they're not really, they're great people, but not really doing much career or business-wise. Like, yes. That's probably not as going ambitious. to need to change. Yeah, like if you can get the right people around you, you know, you become so much more authentic. You know, you you suddenly feel like, you know, we have this this need to belong, don't we? And if we haven't got that sense of belonging, if you haven't got those right people, then you you feel pent up, like you you can't just say what you want to say because you've got that fear that the tribe's going to reject you. Um, whereas if you're known, if it, if you know that the people around you will love you and love you unconditionally, and that you're going to be okay, then it, then you start to feel a bit more comfortable in doing what you need to do because you know that it's just it's so um, subliminal, isn't it? Like it's, it's not you're not going to die, like you're going to be okay. But it's just that such primal fear of being rejected by the the tribe or the herd that I don't do something. So, um, and there's so much more research coming out about that in neuroscience that the foundation of, of everything now is not just um, food, water, shelter, but belonging. I think Brene Brown's done quite a bit of work on that. Yeah, I think it's a tribal way that we connect and share information and being around, like I said, being around people and being seeing, seeing how they think even in non-business situations is huge impact. Yeah, I think so. Like, you know, and if you look at places, I think there's becoming a more mindfulness of, of tribes or connecting people who have similar interests. Do you think? Have you noticed that? I think within certain circles, yes. Yeah. It depends on who you're around. And it's kind of come the nurture nature type thing. Some people will seek yeah. out. Let me rephrase it. I think certain people if you have experienced loss where you don't have the connection mm. that you normally have you then tend to seek it out mm. which is painful yes. as loss maybe in the first place it does give you opening to create connection yes yeah i think that's really insightful because it's not until you haven't got it that you realize yeah if you lose, if you lose what's supposed to be an integral part of your well-being as a human in our connection that's usually where we learn a lot of our traits and a lot of passed on knowledge yes if that's, that's taken right. if, if that if that connection severed you then find a way to replace it so you i guess you can be more conscious with what you want to bring in yes yeah i had um it's so true because i had it's interesting it reminds me of a, a lady that i worked with last year she was in the u.s and um she had um vitiligo like you know the skin condition yeah. that is all so she was african-american and she called me from Louisiana. Louisiana. <laughs> she, um, Louisiana, and uh, she had, you know, she's just this in incredible woman. And she, she had vitiligo when she contacted me. She found me on Instagram actually, and she said, "I need to work with you. I need to, um, you know, I'm trying to create this message, and I, and what, and I want to be able to help people." And I said, "Okay." I said, "Well, the first question I've got is tell me about." your skin condition like I don't understand I didn't know very much about it so she explained about it and she said you know she said years ago I used to she said I uh, it's actually a um uh, a genetic condition but it comes on from stress and she got divorced as well and and she said it came on when the divorce happened and she said I when it first started to happen she said she used to cover all her skin with 
the makeup so that it was all even and no one could tell. Because she said, until then, you know, she said if I went to the shops or went to the mall, um, <laughs> she said, she said, you know, she said kids would moo at me, and like, like I was a cow. And uh, I said that's terrible. Um, and so she said uh, it wasn't until this she was dating this guy, and he he turned up unannounced at her house, and she said I don't know who screamed him or me more <laughs> she said I didn't have my makeup on or anything and and he said you know what he said you're beautiful I love you for who you are and he said I wonder he said well tell me about it she had to explain it all and he said well does anybody else have this problem and she said yeah like heaps of people have this this condition and he said well you know what you know what you need to do he said you need to create a tribe you need to be the leader of this tribe and you need to be able to help people be themselves who have gone through the same problem and so she is now a, she's a model in the US she's now uh, she created this fantastic hashtag called the skin I'm in and uh, that's great um, she suddenly it's awesome she attracted this tribe of people who had the same challenges and problems and you know so now she's leading that she's going into schools and teaching self-confidence and all this stuff so she's done an awesome job by helping you know if you've got that tribe you create acceptance don't you just things I want to ask you you mentioned about creating tribes so I guess there'll probably be a two-part answer from your side how do women in corporate do it that are wanting to rise up and really become who they are? Yeah. And how do women in the entrepreneurial space start to create their tribes? Yeah. Um, let's, let's, say, let's even talk about people in regional regional towns who are doing that because I think they're even more yeah. isolated. Yes. Yeah, and I grew up in a country town, so it, you know, I didn't realise the impact of not having a tribe. When I moved to the city, you know, the dynamics were all so different. Um, so for women in corporate, what I found for them is that they need to um, connect with people within the business like sponsors, they need to get on things like committees and things like that where they can start to um, and work on projects with other people who can start to see the skills that they've got. Uh, they also need to connect with other women in their industry, perhaps in other organisations. So it might be that they, I've got a client at the moment who's uh, like with um, a large IT global multinational and she uh, really wants to be the um, person known in her industry for creating high performing women in tech. Now, so it's not women in tech, it's about connecting really high performing women in tech, that's what she loves. And so it's about you know the sponsors of those people within the organization but also then positioning yourself to be able to go well what is the highest value I have in my organization because I'm possibly very alone and she's a senior executive not many of them in the senior role so when there's not as many in there you have to create it outside in the industry so that when you're in there you feel strong enough to, to be yourself so that's what I do with corporate. If it's um, small business owners or if there's, so I work in particular with influencers, so people who are on their own, um, is we've got to get them connected to other people who are going through the same experience or if not have at least done or been where they've been and they're on the journey of growth too. So it just helps them to, the biggest challenge I see for female business owners is 
if they're connected to too many that are at the same stage of their growth, they don't see hope. They can't see their future. And whereas within an organisation you can. I mean, you can see, okay, there's that role and there's the executive team and there's the CEO and there's a journey to that. More of a clear path. Yeah, but for female solopreneurs, they're, I mean, there's also um, in that group, they're alone and they've got to work on belief, self-belief that, okay, well, there's someone in the group who is a business that has grown so much more than mine or they've trod the path or they've done, you know, five times the amount of revenue I'm doing right now this quarter. So it is possible. (laughs) It's totally possible. So they need evidence around them. And if they can get the right people around them, that that tribe, then... So we've talked about they need that, but how do do you... What strategies or what do they actively do what kind of steps do they go through to create that um yeah so one is that they well there's probably two things one is that they need to find out like where is a tribe of these similar women like me so if so in my case these clients have got um their uh aspiring influencers or they're early in their stage of being an influencer so we say you know a solopreneur they've got a message they want to write a book they must be meetups coaching groups they might go to those types of places and try and connect. Like, try, look for where do these people hang out. Um, if not, if they can't find them, I say, well, just create your own then. So you don't have to wait to be asked and you don't have to wait to try and find them. Sometimes with these really niche type businesses is that you actually just create it yourself, reach out to people, invite them. community. Yeah. And then the second thing you've got to do is then know how to run that community. Because <laughs> it's one thing to find them all, but then you go, okay, they so keep turning up. This is what you up. go through in Trusted, correct? That's it, yeah. So I wrote Expert to Influencer, and Expert to Influencer is about how to build a tribe. And then uh, Trust, the Trusted book is, because I've come from being an influencer, so I've built all that community because I've, I've communicated and shared value and but now that I've got this tribe, now what do I do to look after them? How do I nurture them? How do I keep them engaged? And um, so that it's now not, they've seen the value now. So now it's about how do you connect and keep that group connected? And the only way you can do that is if you, you've got to lead it. So, um, so yeah, teaching them things like vulnerability, empathy, like empathy is at the heart of it, really understanding the customer problem and all their challenges and experiences. So like the lady with um, the vitiligo, like, you know, huge empathy because she understands the customer's problem. Um, uh, things like teaching them transparency, how to be humble, like it's not about you being the rock star, it's now about service. Um, you just those types of things. And if, they, and if you're in corporate, that's how you run a team. That's how you you know keep a team connected, or if you've created a community, um, because now it's like okay, well if if I want this to be and you tapped in on um, legacy before, if this is going to create the legacy that I want to see it to have and create the impact that I want it to have, then I've got to maintain this thing, <laughs> and and sometimes that's hard to know what to do if you haven't really built those skills before, particularly if you've been on your own for some time. I think we've covered a lot of the ground I wanted to cover in this in this call. Um, what can people do next if they want to learn more about and start their own journey? Maybe they're a bit early in the stage and not quite ready to contact you. What can they do? Yeah, look, happy for people to reach out. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, and 
LinkedIn and all those places and they can go to the website which is jane-anderson.com um, and uh, yeah just reach out and, like share a bit about your business what you're trying to do and you know I always say to people look there's no harm in asking and you know if I'm if I can't help then I'll tell you because I've connected I've trained heaps of influencers so if I'm not the right person I can generally put you in touch with the right one She's also, you've also got a heap of blog posts and uh, your own podcast and stuff that people can consume before they yeah. can reach out. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, the podcast, you know, some people, I, it's funny, I don't think of podcasts sometimes because I don't, I'm a reader, I don't listen, but I forget I've got a, you know, that I do the podcast. So yeah, we just relaunched the podcast this year and and uh, so there's lots of people on there um, that have done probably a similar journey to some of your audience who are saying, well, how did that person do that? So, yeah, we went right, right under the hood uh, for most of their businesses. Yeah, as they've been very generous in sharing their, their knowledge. And in terms of actually engaging you, what kind of stuff can we do if we want to work with you self-personally? Yeah, thank you. So uh, if you want me to come in, I can speak at a conference or an event. So I do quite a few of those. I uh, can come and run a workshop around influence and trust and building up within your leaders and teams in an organisation. Or in particular, if you've got uh, female leaders within your organisation or perhaps you're a female solopreneur and influencer in particular, trying to, to build your influence, then um, yeah, just reach out. I probably can give you a hand. Well, ladies, that was Jane Anderson from jane-anderson.com or janeandersonspeaks.com. And I had a wonderful time. So we'll see you guys all on the next episode. Thank you.